Welcome to Interviews. My name is Laurent Autain and I am on a quest to crack the entrepreneurship code. I created this podcast to give a voice to passionate small and medium entrepreneurs around the world. I hope that the stories, practical tips and advice my guests share will inspire you to better navigate your own entrepreneurship journey. Thank you for joining Interviews. Today I am with Andres Dovos, the founder of Slash, located in Singapore. Hi Andres, thank you very much for joining me today. Hi Laurent, glad to be here. Excellent. So let's start. Please tell us a little bit about your journey. So I started my entrepreneur, uh, my entrepreneur journey in 2000, uh, end of 2011, uh, after a career in consulting. Uh, I set up my first company, my first two businesses with my wife. Uh, I, it took us two businesses to figure out that it's better to do things separately. Uh, <laughs> the, the first business was a was a was a marketplace uh, for activities, a bit like an Airbnb for experiences. Uh, it went quite well. We won some prizes in the Silicon Valley uh, accelerator called uh, Founder Institutes. Uh, but we then we got married that year, and we felt that you know our client, our our target client was uh, was backpackers, uh, mm. and we felt we we sort of uh, we were entering a new phase of our life. We we're not we were sort of not entering in our twenties. We we're more like going to our thirties, and we felt it wasn't the right business anymore. So we pivoted out of that. We sold off some IP, uh, and then we targeted our second business into a segment of the market that had the most traction for our marketplace, and that was. Um, food tours and mm. we started talking to chefs and the chefs uh, a lot of chefs said they would love to do more private chefing events at people's houses they get lots of requests so our second business called Club Vivre uh, was uh, a marketplace for private chefs and uh, a bit uh, more like an uber for private chefs we did it for about four years uh, we learned a lot about the business uh, we grew it quite a bit we raised our first round of funding as well um, we were about to expand to China. With that business, we, were, uh, we raised uh, 45 million USD to go to China with that business. And then mm. uh, two weeks later, after signing the term sheet, the main investor got a heart attack. And when that happened, our syndicate fell apart and, uh, and we basically lost the deal. And we were uh, up to that point, we we're still burning a lot of money um, and we were not profitable. So we scratched our head a little bit, decided to make to save the business. We put in all the money we had to save the business. We turned it around in a few months time to make it profitable. Uh, we let go of most of our team in Singapore. We created a back office in the Philippines. And in 2000, that was end of 2015. And in 2016, we were sitting on a, on uh, essentially, you know, limited savings, but a profitable lifestyle business. And we took a break. So we are sitting on the beach in Thailand with my wife for new year. Uh, looking at ourselves, okay, what do we do now? You know, four mm. or five years into the journey, uh, we failed two startups. Uh, and at that point in time, we decided to, uh, to continue the entrepreneur uh, journey, but both separately with our own ventures. Um, we, also, um, uh, we also had our first child that year. So my wife took a break. Um, I set up uh, our, my third business with, my, uh, with the CTO of my Club Vive, a Frenchman called, named Mark. Uh, we, that business became, um, uh, became a venture builder. So it's called Slash and that's what I do now. And with Slash, we have two activities. On one hand, we build and invest in startups, uh, a bit like a startup factory. Mm -hmm. Uh, we've done now 14 
Uh, one we have successfully sold to a multinational. Uh, five uh, projects have we've started and killed, and one uh, and sorry, and eight are now uh, active and ongoing. Um, and we've raised about six million USD for those eight, and and they're growing each with their own their own brand, their own CEO, their own roadmap. And the second activity we have is that we have a, we have a shared service center with a, a bench of of, uh, of 50 or so specialists in-house. And those specialists support both our own ventures, but they also are offered as a, as a service to clients, uh, big corporates, startups, and, uh, and government clients. Um, and uh, and we, we deliver primarily product design and software engineering services. You mentioned this uh, startup factory. It's very interesting. So basically, you nurture startups, right? Yeah, in a way. Yes, we do. Okay. But we but we don't have we don't have an we're not an accelerator. People people do not apply like in a cohort, and we do not have a standby fund. It's our own money, and we don't have batches. So it's uh, we are opportunistically uh, working with entrepreneurs when we come across them, um, and we try and partner with them. So it's uh, it's in that sense much more uh, ad hoc and opportunistic. Right. So that's very interesting because this podcast is about entrepreneurship and I hope my audience are, are, are entrepreneurs. What, what do you see? How do you make your decision? Which startups will you go after? Which one are, are the ones that, that are successful from an, an entrepreneurial point of view? Well, it, it really depends what you're trying to do. In our case, we are looking for startups that can become profitable within a reasonable time frame, hopefully mm. within two years or less. Uh, we are also targeting startups that are B2B. Uh, being based in Asia, we think that in Asia, it's much easier and less risky to set up a, a B2B startup than a B2C startup. You need less capital. You only need to secure one or two uh, flagship clients, market clients, to get you to, uh, to profitability in a business space. Whereas for consumers, you may need to raise seven digits to get to a stage where you have enough users that can actually make you profitable. Um, and raising seven, seven digits comes with all sorts of risks, including a lot of dilution. So we think B2B is in a way easier to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we target, uh, we target uh, entrepreneurs that are uh, typically first-time entrepreneurs uh, between 35 years old and 50 years old. They tend to be uh, very experienced in their own industry or domain. We don't have to tell them about their industry. They tell us. They're experts. How, wh- the reason they come to us is because they usually lack product or technology skills. And they're also first-time entrepreneurs, and they want an entrepreneurial partner who can help them avoid the big mistakes. And that's when we we come in and partner with them. Uh, we act as a CEO coach, uh, help them structure it. We usually sit on the board as well, and we are their tech and product team all the way till maybe Series A until they've raised five or ten million dollars in the bank, uh, and they can take that function in-house, and then we hand it over to their in-house team. And we typically also help them hire their in-house team, as in we help interview and qualify. Uh, you know the the candidates that they're interviewing. Okay, so let's continue a little bit on that on that topic. Let's talk about raising money because I think one of your key strengths, and you said it yourself, you were able to raise like forty five million US dollar before moving to to China. So one of your key strengths is to the ability to raise money. Can you tell us a little bit more about about what it takes to successfully raise money? Well, the the short answer is that you need a business that is worth, uh, that is investable. Um, that, that is the short answer. If you don't have an investable business, uh, uh, then you need to be very, very good as a deal maker 
mm. and as a, a, in order to wow investors even with uh, a pipe dream. Um, so these are really the two elements to, to raising. So when it comes to raising uh, uh, as an investable business, you have to always ask yourself, who are the investors that would consider that this is an investable business? And that's the kind of the key criteria or key framework to consider. And right. you have a, a variety of, of sources of funding. You have venture capitalists who tend to be, uh, we tend to look for, for very scalable exponential models uh, because their business model is that they have to invest in 10 businesses, one of which might be successful uh, and that has to return their entire fund, nine will die. So they're really looking for that, those outliers that can get to, uh, to, to, uh, to exponential growth. Uh, venture capitalists are typically very good as a target if you have a business that is very high tech, low operations, um, and where, the, where your numbers are already, sh are already showing. Um, then you have other types of investors as well. You have angel investors, you have family offices, you have strategic investors, corporates that have a certain interest in, in your industry or in your, in your solution. And they might invest not because your numbers are there, but because your solution might result to something they want down the road, either to own or to be part of. Um, and so you always have to, come to ask yourself, who are those investors that would, that would consider your business as being investable? Mm. Um, and that is frankly the hardest, the hardest piece because uh, you, know, you, you don't always know those investors. You don't know their criteria well enough. So it's a bit of a guess game. Uh, with experience as an entrepreneur, you can you can you you start seeing the signals and you start understanding a bit more what the parameters are that those different categories of investors look for. Um, in my case, uh, I've mostly raised from strategics uh, and family offices uh, and angels, uh, very little from VCs. Uh, with some of my portfolio, now we've raised from VCs. In general, um, it, it's a matter of person of of, uh, of uh, preference as well as a founder who you raise from. Uh, you can be guaranteed that if you race from a VC, you're uh, you're gonna go down a roller coaster ride. VCs are not gonna let let go of you. Uh, mm -hmm. They will want you to be successful, or they will kick you out, or they will um, they will force you in a certain in a certain way. They will force you down the road in order to give them some kind of return if they can. Um, so that means you you are entering into a relationship um, that might become that that is very competitive and and. Uh, that is totally fine if that's the game you want to play. We, there's some amazing VCs out there that can really help you, uh, but it very much depends on on on, on your aspirations. Uh, my preference tends to be more longer-term investors that don't have the pressure of having to have to have an exit in five years or so. So that's why I tend to go to family offices or strategic investors. Mm -hmm. With strategic investors, you have other challenges with them. They usually have an agenda, so you have to try and find out what the agenda is. That agenda can also change over time. So it comes with politics as well. So uh, in ideal world, you don't raise money. Um, <laughs> so because once, once you start looking at all the pros and cons, you realize that every time you raise money, it comes with very, with, with conditions, right? right. Uh, it's the easiest that you raise from, from a bunch of angel investors or friends and family, especially if you need not too much money, let's say half a million or a million dollars, then you can maybe raise from, from angel investors. Those angel investors tend to be depending on the age investor tends to be a little bit more understanding. They tend to be mm -hmm. a little bit more patient. Uh, there's also a way to strike up a deal or to restructure the, uh, the roadmap down the road. So it very much depends on, on, on why they invest in you. So that, that's the investable piece. Um, so we tend to focus on business that are, uh, that can be profitable so that we don't have to raise money in order to survive. Because if you raise money in order to survive, it's a very different dynamic than if you raise money in order to grow. Growing means that you're already a profitable business, that you don't need the money, but you want the money to go faster. 
Mm. Once you are in that situation, the, the dynamics of raising money become ex totally different and becomes much, much more attractive in a way for a founder. Um, so you, you, if you put yourself in a situation where you don't need the money, but you want the money and you can target the money, then you can go for smart money that helps you on your roadmap and that has, that has the right fit with you. That is a, a far better situation to be in. Um, so that is sort of the, the uh, I suppose, the, the, the investable piece. Uh, and, and, and it's obviously important to consider, you know, uh, to consider not only the, the mechanics of this, but as a founder, uh, you know, your, um, your personal vision mm. in this, like what you want to do as a founder. Um, so if you are just chasing money for the sake of money, you know, you might make potentially silly mistakes down the road. It's better to be authentic about what you want uh, and make decisions that are more long-term aligned to that authenticity. Right. But here we're talking about company's culture, right? And are you saying that the company cultures or the way you raise money needs to be aligned with the company's culture? I think it's less about the company culture. It's more about the, um, the vision of the individual founder or founders. Um, so the, the, the worst thing that can happen as a CEO of, a, of your own company is that you, you lie to yourself. If you lie to yourself for too long, you lose your, you, you lose your authenticity, your voice, your, your, your raison d'etre, your, your purpose. So, and you also lose the ability to make fact-based decisions. Mm -hmm. um, so, so authenticity is a lot, has a lot to do with being connected to, to that vision that you have uh, and to your motivations. So that when you, you do decide, for example, to raise money and to give some control away of the business, that this is a decision that you're at peace with. Um, if it's a decision that, you're being, that, that, is that, is, that is forced upon you because of the situation, it's always more painful. Um, so the, the rule number one is cash is king. If you mm. can set yourself as a founder where at least you control your own destiny, uh, that it, it's, it's much safer. And it's easier to be true to yourself when you control your own destiny than it is when you are uh, beholden to other uh, shareholders that influence you. And again, if those shareholders uh, are aligned to, you, to what you want in your long-term vision, then that's totally fine. Um, but if they're not, you know, you start this game of, of, of politics within your organization. And, and mm. then you have to know where you stand and, and what you stand for as a CEO, because ultimately the shareholders are not the one that are uh, burning the midnight oil to, to make your business a success. They're not the ones with a monkey on their shoulder in a shower. You are. So if you're not the one doing that, no one else is doing that. So if other people are telling you what to do, it can be quite challenging to, to retain your motivation over, a, over an extended period of time. That's what I mean with, with, with you know, being true to, your, to yourself and, and, having, and being in search for, for your authenticity as a founder. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very, that's very clear. Great advice. Let's go back to your own entrepreneurship journey. You said you start, it started in 2011. What were the triggers? How did you decide to become an entrepreneur? So in my case, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, it was just a matter of when. Um, so at the time I had a, a high paying job as a, as a strategy consultant. I was a principal in a firm. Uh, I was fairly young. I was 26 years old, but I was making uh, a lot of money in Singapore. Um, and, uh, and I was negotiating to become a partner in a business. Mm. Um, and, uh, the, there was a, we had, we had to restructure the business because of some deals that didn't, didn't pull through. And the restructuring process of that, of the consultancy firm with my, with my ex-boss at the time, we disagreed 
um, on how we should fire people. Um, and I realized that if we disagreed already on that fairly small crisis where we had to let go of some people, uh, we would disagree on a lot more fundamental things on the road. Mm-hmm. And I should probably not in, not step into the partnership with him because up to that point, I was an employee of his company. Um, and he wanted to take a step back and, and have me kind of take a, take a lead. Um, so when that happened, I, I decided that it was just a matter of time. It was that my expiration date was there. Um, I discussed it with him. Uh, I was a critical piece of the business at the time. So we agreed a sort of a timeline of around uh, six to 12 months for me to transition out to give him time to structure the business. Um, my wife and I already uh, uh, registered our, our business uh, then. Um, she joined a, uh, uh, an, uh, an accelerator called Founder Institute. Um, uh, that had a, it's a Silicon Valley accelerator with a, with a branch in, uh, in, uh, in Singapore. So she started uh, being full-time as a founder. I was still part-time working in the evenings and nights for that new business while the, the travel business, but, and I was financing it. So I was kind of providing the seed capital. Um, and, uh, and when the timing was right, I, uh, about six, seven months later, I, uh, I, I fully quit my job and, and mm. joined full-time. Um, so it was a, it was a transition process. Um, in retrospect, perhaps I should have waited a little bit longer to quit my job and, and just uh, have a little bit more seed capital. Uh, <laughs> because in, in, in a process, the first year of our, of, our, of our own startup journey, we blew a lot of money and mm. silly mistakes, um, partially because we came from this, this environment of money uh, and, and we were uh, perhaps not disciplined enough about how we spend that money on our, on our business because we had, we had a bank account with cash on. Um, uh, now looking back, I think that could have made things radically cheaper. <laughs> and 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 instead of you know losing money on my first business, probably bought a small house, uh, mm. and and uh, while while trying to figure things out at a at a much more fiscally prudent uh, with a much more fiscally prudent approach. Right. Well, that's a, that's a good uh, lesson. Are there any other key lessons that you have learned along the way? Um, yeah, I think you need to be very uh, very uh, clear as to whether you want to set up your business with your own wife. <laughs> no. So we, we have a fantastic partnership with my wife. Uh, we're happily married. We have two children. We both have our own companies now. We still have to this day do sometimes like informal board meetings in the shower. But having said this, um, being both full in into our own, into the same business, um, brings a huge amount of stress. Mm. Uh, it kills romance. Uh, it kills table conversations. Um, if you do it for too long, you know, it can be very challenging. Uh, in our case, it brought the shadow side of our relationship into, into our couple. So we, we start seeing the good and bad of each other in a, in a different light, also from a professional context. So for example, how we hire or fire people, how we raise money, how we bullshit or not bullshit, mm-hmm. uh, how we get work done. So a lot of, a lot of the challenges of work we saw brought, were brought into our relationship. It has given us a lot more respect for each other, for each other's strengths and weaknesses. Also, now we are each other's most trusted advisor, which is all very useful uh, uh, assets, I guess, that we have now. Um, but I think for most couples that start a business together, it can be very challenging. Um, I, I sp- when we started out that journey as a, as a co-founding, uh, co-founders and as a couple, we did speak to a couple of other co-founder couples that we knew. Mm. And uh, some of the advice we got was, uh, look, if you can make it work, you win the lottery, but the likelihood you will make it work is very small. 
Right. And I think I still think that is the most sensible and and more con most concise uh, summary. If you can make it work, you win the lottery. But being able to make it work uh, as co-founders uh, and as a as a as a married couple is definitely challenging. And I would I would I would think that it's for most people just too much of a pain. Uh, also, because when the going gets tough, it gets tough for the entire family not just for one of the founders. So in terms of financial risk diversification, you are not diversified, right? Which brings its own set of challenges. When when at the when we failed with our funding rounds to go to China, we were literally as a family exposed. Mm. It was a very person it was a very personal moment. It was not just about a career choice. It was it was a very personal moment. So you've set up several businesses, invested in many others, uh, and you've done that most of it remotely, right? I mean, not being physically um, present in the businesses you've invested. Yeah, yeah, that's probably fair. Um, I mean, most of the founders that I, most of my business partners and co-founders uh, for those businesses are people I do know or I have gotten mm -hmm. to know them. Uh, I have met them all physically. The last one was actually a few weeks ago during the, the, the lockdown here in Singapore. We decided to uh, invest already over Zoom calls, uh, but we then eventually waited out of principle to sign a contract until we could physically see each other right. putting the contract together in Singapore, so which we did a few weeks ago. Um, but but all the so all the founders we do know, we do have a relation uh, or we have built a personal relationship with them. Um, but you're right that for, for those businesses, whether they are based in Singapore or they're elsewhere, uh, and whether we see the physically the operation or not, those are not really criteria. It's really also because they're very early stage businesses. So usually the assets are very small uh, and it's, it's really more driven by the main assets really is often the founder and the ability of the founder to make it happen and to access a market. Um, now, in terms of my, of my own group, uh, I also run my business in a distributed fashion. Mm. So uh, most of my team sits in different parts of the world. Um, I have very few people in Singapore and as a result, uh, I'm very used to working virtually with people even before COVID. This has basically been our modus operandi for the last couple of years. My business partner sits in Bali, Indonesia. We've only started recently in a few, uh, just before COVID, we only started building a team around him in Bali. Before that, both him and myself were not sitting with the bulk of our team. Um, so this was a, uh, by design, by choice. Um, uh, it forced us to figure out our systems and processes early on. It also forced us to figure out our middle manager layer very early on in the business. It also forced us to think very carefully about our about our time use, um, uh, as well as about our uh, the the routines where the company culture we're building and the routines we're building in order to build the right uh, team culture. So, for example, uh, one of the consequences of this of the, of our of our philosophy uh, in how we manage the business is that we do need uh, intense time uh, together uh, with the entire team. So every year we have an annual retreat of one week where we bring the entire team together. It's a bit like a, like a kumbaya around the campfire, quite literally. We often sing and dance around the campfire uh, as well as doing some professional thing. Um, so this is part of kind of our philosophy. Uh, the benefit is, is that this one week together usually sustains us for the entire year because the right. team is very bonded there. They get drunk together, they dance together, they sing together, they help each other, they, they, uh, it, they talk about personal things, they talk about professional development, mentoring. 
it gets very, very intense that one week together. And it really, uh, it really unlocks so much value for us as a business. So this is something that we have done from the very beginning uh, of, the, of the company. Um, <clears throat> so uh, there, there's a number of other examples like this, but so it, it comes down to the, your, your management philosophy. Okay, so basically what you're saying is that you have to integrate the fact that uh, working remotely is a factor or a constraint and that it has to be integrated in your in uh, in the way you structure the company exactly okay. yeah are there any disadvantages though of course i mean um uh well just to be clear we are not fully remote so we are we are distributed so we have mm. uh concentrations we have we have uh three offices where there's more concentration physical concentration yeah, we also have some people that are fully remote, not in any of those offices or cities. Uh, but so the bulk of our team, of our in-house team, sits in those cities and do come regularly to the office, pre-COVID. Now with COVID, there's of course a bit of a transition at the moment ongoing. Um, but so we, we do have uh, a physical component to our, to our uh, teamwork, uh, especially for, you know, a lot of our work consists out of creative problem solving for, um, for uh, engineering problems or, or digital problems. Uh, and it does help to be physically in a workshop room together uh, every now and then, at least every one week or two weeks. Having said this, you can work, you, we can fully work fully remote. Uh, <clears throat> during COVID, that transition was actually fairly easy for us to do. Um, the disadvantages uh, to uh, having a distributed team where the founders are not sitting next to the team um, are, are obviously that you, you don't have the same level of control, the same level of oversight. Uh, and the same level of, uh, of um, um, uh, morale boost that you can give the team every day. Mm. So you have, to, uh, in order, you have to be very clear on how you articulate your vision to the team remotely. And you also have to build in enough touch points with the team, whether it's over video call or by physically going there every now and then. So pre-COVID, I was going to our office in Cambodia every six weeks or so for a couple of days, usually two, three days. That was enough. Uh, but just spend time with the team and also spend time with some of our clients there. Um, so you, you, physical physicality of it does really make sense. Humans, humans are, are humans. Mm -hmm. I'm not a believer in working fully remote. I mean, I do know some companies that do that, like, like GitLab or WordPress or there's a couple of other ones. Um, but I, I'm just not sure if that's necessarily desirable either. Um, I, I think human touch is important. Uh, but, you know, by 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 the by the distributed model we've set up, we are one of the advantages that we're just a lot very flexible now, and and that brings a lot of benefits. All right. If you look back at your journey, what are the some of the key milestones in your journey that have made you who you are today? Let me give you an example with my with my own experience. I worked fourteen years in market research, and this has taught me how to ask questions which is a key, you know, coaching skill. And I don't think I would be a coach, a business coach, if I had not had that previous experience. So what about, what about you? I'll mention three. Um, the first one is that I, when I was a student, I was part of an organization called ISEC. Mm -hmm. It's a youth leadership organization. Um, I, uh, I, most of my studies, I spend more time in ISEC than in my studies. Uh, I traveled the world with ISEC to 30 countries. I was a president of ISEC in Belgium. Uh, we set up ISEC in Rwanda uh, as part of ISEC Belgium. Um, I met my wife there. She was the president of ISEC right. Russia. Uh, so this was for us uh, a key, a key 
part of our life, and and in many ways, it also it made me as a it made it, it taught me how to be a leader. It taught me how to speak in public. It taught me how to facilitate groups, how to build a team. That was the first one. Plus, it gives me a global perspective and a global network of friends and a global network of of, uh, of re trusted friends and resources that I can tap into up to this day. The second milestone was, uh, in my case, was the consulting experience. I worked for a boutique firm. I had job offers for larger companies, um, but I moved to Asia with a small boutique firm run by a, by a, a senior um, uh, senior consultant who was my boss at the time, uh, the one I parted ways uh, after. Uh, so he's um, he's British, uh, very intelligent. He helped IB he helped turn around IBM in the 90s in Asia. Uh, he was the kind of guy who was the perfect mentor for me. So for six years, he mentored me about business, mm -hmm. uh, both as a, as a strategy consultant, as an operation consultant, uh, but also in other things like how to build a firm, how to sell, how to try contracts, uh, how to hire, fire, even though I had some disagreements with him. A lot of the things I learned from him, and I and now as a small business owner, those are things I have adopted in my in my uh, in my SOP in a way, uh, and I've learned how to improve on top of that, or at least to add my my personalization to that. The third piece is probably the dramatic uh, events of uh, of the forty five million dollar deal that, didn't, yeah. that that I didn't manage to raise. When that happened, I learned a lot about myself, about uh, what I want in a business. Uh, the importance of cash is king, um, but also the, benef the, the challenges of raising money. I spoke to more than 800 investors. Uh, I still have the spreadsheets. Uh, I've made a lot of contacts uh, as a result of that. So I, I, you know, my, my network of investors is still from those days. Mm -hmm. Since then, I've added a few more, but the bulk of that has come from, from me networking with a lot of people during a period of my life for about a year and a half uh, to try and scale that business. Uh, it also taught me how that investor taught the, the, the man had a heart, uh, had a heart attack. Uh, he was very, very clever. He was uh, self-made. Um, he had three investments that had a 400x return uh, in uh, in China, uh, Groupon clones specifically in the mm -hmm. in, in mid-2000s. Um, so he made a lot of money with small investment of 40,000 USD, 400x return, go figure how much, right? So... You know, I and I, I sort of learned how he structures his deals, how he does business, and uh, and that has helped me to figure out how I need to structure my deals and how I need to do business. Um, so these are probably the the three the three sort of key milestones uh, that sort of have probably shaped my journey. What are you the most proud of? Oh, probably my family. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I, you know, my two kids, my wife. I'm, I'm actually most proud of my partnership with my wife. Uh, both as a entrepreneur, but also as a as a husband and father, uh, I have this theory that um, that you need horses in life. A horse mm -hmm. is, you know, when you when you when you set out to to run a far distance, like like a marathon, either you're very good at running a marathon, or it helps to have a horse. Mm -hmm. In my case, I'm not necessarily a good runner, uh, but I know how to pick my horses. So it sounds probably wrong to say, but my wife is uh, is my main horse in life. She's also my I'm I'm her main horse. My other business partner, Mark, uh, is, is my other horse. And thanks to those horses, I can go much farther, much further, much in a much more sustainable manner um, with our own capital in our own, in our own way, uh, which gives us a lot more control, uh, a lot more freedom, a lot more lifestyle. Uh, and yet it allows us to still achieve bigger ambitions. Um, so to me, that's probably what I'm most proud of and most happy with um, uh, because it has a huge impact on my personal life, on my family life, 
uh, and but also my ability to dream big as an entrepreneur and to mm. allow myself to take risks. If you cannot dream big as an entrepreneur, not you don't allow yourself to take risks, you won't get anywhere. Uh, so uh, this, to me, that support system that I have with my wife and my business partner are are tremendously helpful. Will it be the one recommendation you would give to entrepreneurs out there? As a gen as a generalization, absolutely. I mean, having a support system is tremendously helpful. No one can do it alone. Uh, but depending on where the entrepreneur is, my other recommendation would be sales, sales, sales. <laughs> I mean, it's mm. never too early to build a sales machine. Um, all the time I've spent trying to raise money, if I would have spent that in just sales, I think my other business would have been in a different place. Um, it's not, it's, we, we glorify the idea of leveraging ourselves and trying to build a rocket ship right, with huge capital that gets us to the moon very quickly. We dream of shortcuts like this. And we also see them every day in the news in TechCrunch tech or in LinkedIn uh, or on Facebook. The, the reality is that that's, a very, that's one path and one specific path. Uh, and, but there's many other paths to take. And I would argue that uh, if you focus on sales, it doesn't come at the at the at the uh, at the expense of them being able to leverage yourself. You can still choose to leverage yourself afterwards if you mm. if you want to. Um, but sales, building a sales machine, is probably uh, the one skill that every founder needs to have. Okay. Well, that was the last question. How can people contact you? Uh, the easiest would be LinkedIn. Uh, so you can just look up my name on LinkedIn. I'm a I'm an avid open networker on LinkedIn. So uh, they're always welcome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how we met. Exactly. So I'm, I'm very happy to be connected on LinkedIn and to chat with people. All right. Well, thank you very much, Andreas, for, for your time today. Thank you, Lo. It was a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. If you have any questions for my guests or myself, or if you'd like to be a guest yourself, send an email to contact at or reach out on LinkedIn. See you next time. Bye-bye.